Hi, this is Carly, a recovered alcoholic. Welcome back to North Star Big Book, episode 43. I know we finished the big book. I am doing a special recording of how we take a new person through the first three steps in order to get them into the steps. This is different than big book study. Um, I'm going to explain a little bit about it and how this is going to go. Because I like to keep the podcast only 30 minutes, I'm probably going to have three sets of three parts of how to do this and I'll just stop in between and start it again. Um, I just want to explain how I do this. A lot of the girls I work with want this on recording so when they don't feel comfortable yet taking a girl through with their own words they can put this on and press play and sit with their big books open with the brand new person or the person who's coming back and follow along which takes them through the first three steps and then they would turn it off and the girl would take the new person um, how to do step four and those directions. So we're going to start. Um, it's Let's imagine that I just met a brand new person at a meeting and they're desperate and they say they want help. And we go up to them and we tell them that we have a way to help them and we need to sit for like an hour and go over the first three steps. And if they would like to do that, that we're more than happy to do that with them. It often happens after a meeting in a parking lot, in a separate room, in someone's house. Um, if it's someone that's coming back from a relapse and I've taken them through the first three steps, the only thing I need to do is take them through again. There is no amount of times that you can take someone through that you're done or that it's too much or that it's not working. This is the foundation of our program and this is how we're going to do it. So I'm going to talk to you as if you are the new person and we will begin. So I will introduce myself as a recovered alcoholic. I'm going to tell them what that means. Um, What it means to me is I no longer have a body and a mind that need alcohol. I am not someone who's able to drink alcohol because of the allergy that happens when I put alcohol in my body. And all that really means in my own, in simple terms, is that when I put alcohol in my body, I can't control the amount I take. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was broken, I was a mess, I was lost, I hated myself, I wanted to die, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't live with alcohol, I couldn't live without it, and I couldn't function. And I tried AA and it didn't work, and what I tried in AA was I just tried going to meetings and not drinking and not using, and it made it really hard because I wasn't doing anything to get rid of the mess within myself and all the voices and noise in my head, and that is why we do the steps. So I have the I have you open up the book. We're opening up the book to the brand new page. Um, I do not want you to write anything during this time. You are just to listen and you can follow along. I talk fast. I jump around. This is not like big book study. We kind of go with the flow of the book. And um, it's not about getting everything written and underlined at this point. It's about understanding the basics of the problem, the solution, and what we're going to do about it. Um you will have plenty of time to study the big book with us at, an, at another time, and you will underline and highlight and write notes during that time. Right now, it's just about understanding what's the problem. So I open up the book to the first page where it says Alcoholics Anonymous, and I tell them that um, the sole purpose of, of an AA group is the practicing and teaching of the 12 steps, and I explain to you, the new person, why I have to do this. And the reason why I need to do this is because the, it was given to me like this, and I have to pass it on to you exactly how it was given to me. What we're going to go over right now is 
what the first 100 men and women would do. Before there was a book, they didn't have books to follow along. They sat down and they had a conversation about the problem, the solution, and the program of action. And that's what we're going to do today. So I'm going to flip the page to that first page where it says the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And I'm just going to remind you again that this is something that you can recover from. It doesn't mean you can ever drink again safely. It just means that you can get to a place through step work and inventory work and prayer and meditation and cleaning house where you no longer have to live a life where alcohol is your only solution. We're going to flip over to the preface. The first part, um, in my book, I have a third edition. It's XI, Roman numeral 11. And I'm going to go down to the, um, before I get down to the words, I want to just tell you a little story. And it's one that I like to share whenever I take someone through the first three steps. It's about the cake recipe. So we are in Little Italy, and we're at one of those beautiful little bakeries, and we sit outside on a little cafe table, and I give you a piece of cake, and I tell you, this is the best cake you're ever going to have, and it's sliced laying on its side, and there's like 10 layers of fine handcrafted Italian cake with cream and beautiful stuff on there, and you take a bite of it, and you, your eyes roll in the back of your mind, and you're like, that is the best thing I've ever had. And I'm smiling because I knew it was the best thing you're going to have. And you say to me, I want to make this cake. How do I make this cake? And I say to you, funny, you should ask. Everyone always asks that. So we have printouts and, you know, they're three pages long because it's a complicated process. But I numbered them all and the ingredients are on there and you have to go to two different stores to get the ingredients. But if you follow the directions and get the right ingredients, you will have the exact same cake. And you go home and you take your directions and you throw them in the back of your seat after looking at them and you're like, there's no way I'm going to two different stores and I'm not going to go to Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. It's expensive. I'm just going to go to Giant. I'll just get everything I need there. And you go down the aisle and you are already not following the directions. And you start picking out things at the grocery store and they're not the things that are on the list, but they're less expensive or they're off brand, even though I specifically said specific brands. And we get home and... When I see that, I need to separate eggs and then let them sit for a certain period of time. And then I need to heat the oven. And then I need to, you know, whip the cream. And I need to do all these different things. I decide that it's too much time and there's too much eggs and it's too much sugar. And why can't I substitute it for this? And why can't I have margarine instead of butter? And along the way, I end up making some sort of cake. But it is not the cake that that I gave you in Little Italy. And when it comes out and I'm mad about it, um, the only person that is to blame is myself for not following the directions. And the reason why we tell that story at this point is that if you want what is written down in this book, these promises of this beauty and this peaceful and this purposeful, directed, useful life, you need to follow the directions exactly as they're laid out in the book, which is what we're going to do in Big Book Study. And right now we're going to, start, we're going to go over what we need to do in order to get to that place. So if I want what they have, if I want what the first 100 members had, I need to do what they did. I got to follow the recipe. And the big book is the centerpiece and it has our recovery program in it. The second paragraph says, because this book, that's the one that we're reading, has become the basic text. A text means a student of the book, a book of instructions. I want to become a student of the book. For our society, society is just people of like mind. So people who are having a hard time with drinking. So because this book is what we use to study, to have instructions for people who have a problem with alcohol, 
and it's helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left untouched in the course of revisions made for both the second and the third editions. So basically, this is just saying, don't mess with it. We're going to flip the page to where it says the forward to the first edition. This is going to be talking about the problem. So I go into the doctor and I can't breathe and um, my arm hurts and I'm barely able to walk and they, you know, pulled me off the court and no one knows what to do and they identify that I am having heart failure and they take me in and they do an ultrasound in, on my heart and they see that there's blockage and they, they decide that I need to have open heart surgery and three of my four chambers are blocked and I need to do something about it right now. I need a proper identification of what the problem is before I can do whatever the drastic solution is going to be. And the solution that we offer in Alcoholics Anonymous is drastic. It is not open heart surgery. There is no physical pain involved in it. Um, but it is drastic. It does ask us to let go of our old ideas. It let, it asks me to um, let go of things that were my survival skills out there are now going to be the things that are going to cause me to get blocked off in here. It asks me to pick one person in the beginning to um, ask to be my guide. That person we call a sponsor in AA, and that person should be someone who has knowledge and experience and is effectively living the the program of the book, especially 10, 11, and 12, and can guide me through the book because what I'm about to embark on is a life and death errand, and I want someone who's capable of taking me up the mountain and who knows what to do when I lose my way, someone who's going to be good at that guidance. So the first part of the book says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So the book is promising me right here that I can become recovered, and they're telling me what from. A seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So if I'm the doctor and I'm leaning over you while you're barely breathing and we've identified the problem, I'm telling you the problem is you have three out of your four chambers are blocked and you're going to die. That's the problem. And I'm also telling you that you can no longer have this problem as long as you do certain things. And the first thing that we're going to need to do is, is a cleaning out of what's blocking you. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So the book is tell, telling me again and I'm telling you to the new person that I'm going to show you precisely how to do this. And that that's what the whole purpose of it is. It's not meeting for coffee once a week and talking about your mom. It is getting through the work so we can get to a place where we're free. And then they're going to tell me at the way bottom of that paragraph, many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. What they're starting to identify is the disease concept. And what we're really going to walk away with tonight is that I have a twofold illness. That I have, a, I have a body that when I put alcohol in it, I can't process alcohol like other people. That something happens in my body where, um, not every single time, but it happens in my body where I cannot control the amount I'm going to take. And that's called the physical allergy. So when alcohol is in my body, I physically react. And the, the way I abnormally react is I need more alcohol. When I don't have alcohol in my body, my mind tells me the lie that I need it in my body because I feel horrible. I feel restless, irritable, and discontent, and that's called the mental obsession. So I've got a body that can't process alcohol. And if that was my main problem, which is what we hear a lot in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, don't drink, go to meetings, just don't pick up the first drink. If my main problem was the drinking, then all I would have to do is not drink, go to detox, go to punch a cop, get in prison for you know a week, get released, and... 
I'm no longer addicted to alcohol. I no longer have a physical craving because it's no longer my body and I'll be on my way. But my real problem is what happens to me when I don't have alcohol in my body. I'm sitting in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm hearing well-meaning people talk and telling me to just keep coming back. It'll get better. And it's not getting better because I have something inside of my mind called a mental obsession. And an obsession is a thought that blocks out all other thoughts. So while you're saying kind things to me like let us love you until you can love yourself, I'm thinking I hate this. This was a big mistake. These people are crazy. I didn't have this. I didn't do that. And I'm starting to get myself out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in my head. Um, We are going to flip to the the forward to the third edition, the bottom paragraph. And it says on the bottom, in spite of the great increase in the size and span of this fellowship, at its core it remains simple and personal. Simple is about the 12 steps. It's one alcoholic sitting down with another alcoholic. That's what the personal part is. It's simple. It's about the steps in the book. And personal is one-on-one. It could be one-on-one. It could be one with a bunch of girls. Sometimes I like to invite other um, girls who are newer to come and sit in and listen to us do the first three steps so they can start taking notes because they couldn't take them when they were first being taken through. And there's nothing wrong with that. I had to do that for many, many times with my sponsor. I had to listen to him take many men and women through the book and I kept underlining and highlighting and and I took a different color so that color was the one I did just for the first three steps and it was until I did it so many times that I got comfortable on my own it says each day somewhere in the world recovery which is the 12 steps begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic sharing experience strength and hope so meetings are not recovery Meetings are where I go to hear the message of hope, to share the message of hope, to meet the new person, to hear what happens when I don't come to meetings, and to carry the message. Um, It's not recovery. You cannot get recovered in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous alone. We're now going to be in the doctor's opinion, and I want to jump three pages in to page Roman numeral 26 in the third edition. Um, And it's at the top of the page, it says, we believe. The first real paragraph first real paragraph says we believe so I'll give you a minute to get there this first paragraph I bracketed this paragraph and this is going to be about the physical aspect of the disease so we're only going to be talking about what happens to our body when we put alcohol in it this was written by Dr. Silkworth and this was what he believed and what the medical society believes about alcoholics and what happens to our body when we put alcohol in it so When I put alcohol in my body because I'm an alcoholic, it activates some sort of switch. And I start feeling better and I think, oh my God, that's amazing. I need to have so much more. And the only thing I can be certain of is that I'm going to have another drink. And then after the second drink, I'm actually more thirsty than I was after the first drink. And on and on and on. So this says we believe that's the, the first 100 men and women. And this is the medical opinion. And so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of allergies. So they're saying when we put alcohol into someone who's an alcoholic, that it's a phenomenon, that something happens to them that doesn't happen to anyone else. The word allergy, whenever they use it in the book, just means an abnormal reaction. So one of my sponsors has a ton of allergies. And when she puts, I think it's mango, um, when she has mango, 
she, um, her throat closes up. I think she gets an anaphylactic shock and she has to get an EpiPen and go to the hospital. Same with a bee sting. When I eat mango, I love it and I just want more because it's sugar and my body reacts to sugar and wants more. Nothing happens to my breathing. I don't need to use an EpiPen. If a bee stings me, I complain a lot about it, but I'm fine. I don't even swell up. I'm totally fine. She needs to go to the hospital. She could die. So that's an allergy. It's an abnormal reaction to something that other people don't have an abnormal reaction to. So alcoholics have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. When we put alcohol in our body, we need more. And that is not the normal reaction. When my husband has alcohol, he um, gets a little silly and feels a little tipsy and um, doesn't really have another one unless he's being wild that night and he's going to have two and that's it because he doesn't want to feel out of control. I have the exact opposite feeling. I feel in control. It says, the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types, that the people that put alcohol in their body and they can't control the amount they take, can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So we're not saying you can't drink again. We're saying you can never safely drink. And this is the time when we sit with the new person, we say, any form at all means alcohol is a drug. It is considered a drug by the FDA. There's a national drug code, NDC number four, alcohol, that you can process it. I know because I work in a pharmacy. So alcohol is a drug, which means I can't take any other drugs. I can't take pills. I can't smoke things. I can't inject things. I can't snort things. I can't rub things. I, who knows all the things that are available? I can't chew things. I can't eat things. So that means I can't take sleeping medication that's not prescribed for me. I can't take something that's going to mess with my head. This is also a time where I share with the person I take medication for anxiety. It does not make me feel high. It does not affect my personality. All it does is it um, balances my chemicals as if I had um, diabetes and I needed insulin. And as long as I'm doing something with a doctor who knows what's going on with me and I'm my advocate for myself, it's not an issue. It says, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it. So once we start drinking, we cannot stop. And once having lost their self-confidence. So this is when I stop and I ask the person, did you lose your self-confidence? Did you lose your reliance upon humans? Did you feel like your problems piled up on you? And did it feel astonishingly difficult to solve them? And what we're really trying to get them to admit is that they had the hopeless malady of alcoholism. And I related to all those things. The bottom paragraph is one of the bottom paragraph and the next paragraph, uh, these next two paragraphs, I think are the most clearly identifiable way to describe alcoholism. I got sober when I was 19 and a half years old. I was almost dead, full blown, late stage alcoholic, dying an alcoholic death. Alcoholism has nothing to do with how often you drink, how much you drink, and how long you drink. Alcoholism is what happens when someone who cannot control the amount that they're drinking tries to not drink, and they can't stay not drinking, even though they can stop for a period of time, because their mind gets so miserable and so uncomfortable and so unhappy that their mind convinces them that it's okay to pick up a drink or what's use anyhow. They pick up the drink, they activate the allergy, the physical allergy comes in, they can't control the amount they take, they come to the next day at 1 or 2 p.m., they hate themselves, they can't look in the mirror, everyone doesn't want to have anything to do with them, they try to not drink on their own, they become miserable and depressed and alone and suicidal when they don't drink and they tell themselves, 
see I'm fine. No real alcoholic could go seven days or 13 days or whatever without drinking. And I'm miserable when I'm not drinking. And what I told myself was no one wants to be around me when I'm not drinking because I'm so depressing. I can't sleep when I'm not drinking. I can't breathe when I'm not drinking. I can't study when I'm not drinking. I can't function when I'm not drinking. I'm having horrible nightmares because I can't fall asleep. I can't pass out. And what I told myself when I would do these little experiments with not drinking or not using was I would tell myself, I, I cannot live like this anymore. I'm just going to have it tonight or no one's going to find out or a real alcoholic can't go three weeks. So I'll be fine. Or what I really told myself, because I, I convinced myself that my real problem was um, a psychiatric and emotional mental problem. And I just was not on the right medication. And so my real problem was I, I didn't find the right doctor and the right medication. And I was just going to drink and do other things until I got on the right medication. And that was my mental obsession, the disease, which is the lie. And it was constantly trying to convince me that it was okay to drink. Its only goal is to kill me. It would like me drunk, but it prefers me dead. So I just want to go over this part. It says men and women. So this is why we drink. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol, the sensation. So what happens when I drink? I feel, I feel relief when I drink is so elusive that while they admit is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. What that is saying is, yes, I can admit that it causes problems in my life and people don't like it, but I can't, I can't make any decisions anymore that don't allow me to pick this up because I can't breathe without it. And I got to a place where I couldn't understand if something I was imagining or afraid of was something that happened, something that I saw in a play, something I read about in a book, something I saw in a movie, something that was real, something that I was paranoid about. I no longer could tell the truth and the false, and I no longer could trust myself or anyone else. To them, their alcoholic life seems only normal one. It was normal. The way I was living was normal. Stealing food from the grocery store because I didn't have any money. Using my body to get things that I didn't, that I knew I shouldn't be getting. Waking up next to people I didn't want to wake up next to. Having an open relationship with my boyfriend who I lived with. The craziness and insanity of the life I lived. Walking all over campus, totally out of my mind without shoes or socks on in the middle of the winter. I couldn't differentiate what was right and what was wrong. It says they, and this is what happens to me in a forced period of sobriety. So my mom says to me, because I'm suicidal and miserable and she's sober. And I say, I don't know what to do anymore. And she says, I think you should not drink or drug and see how you could do. And so I do, I take on this task and I've never been, I've never been unsuccessful at a task I've taken on. I can make my body the way I want it to in anorexia or bulimia. I can get whatever grades I want to if I study and I cheat. I can get whatever guy I want to if I give my body up and I, my morals up. I can do whatever I want to do. And I can manipulate the universe the way I need it to be manipulated. But when I try to not drink and not use on my own, what I found out was happening was I was able to do it, but I wasn't able to do it successfully. And what, what that meant was I was so miserable and psychotic and just lost and broken without alcohol or anything in my body that I became what the book t- says is restless, irritable, and discontent. Irritable means emotionally violent. Restless is being uncomfortable in your own skin. And discontent means... Um, I'm never happy with what I, with what I have. You give me this, I want something else. You give me like that, I want it bigger. You give me like this, I want a different color. I'm just never happy. I've got a kid who's in line at the can, at the ice cream store and he's complaining that he can't have candy. You're just never happy with what you have. So when I don't drink in a forced period of sobriety, I feel these things. If you can relate to that, what that is describing is untreated alcoholism. 
It says, unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So as soon as I pick up the drink, my mind tells me it's okay to pick up the drink for whatever reason, whether it was a mistake, I was being dramatic, or what's use anyhow, or F it. Whatever I decide I'm going to do to tell myself, I pick up the drink. I feel, this is the way I'd like to describe it, I feel the way you feel on a summer night, a chilly summer night when you're in a hot pool. You get out because you have to get a phone call and you get back in and you jump in the water and it was cold out there. You were shivering. You jump in the water and you feel amazing in the warm water and you think, I never want to get out of the pool. This feels amazing. I'm never getting out of the pool. That's how I felt after not drinking and not using and then coming back putting that alcohol in the glass, I felt like that before it was even in my body. Once it's in my body, it activates the physical allergy and I can no longer decide how many drinks I'm going to drink that night. It says drinks which they see others taking with impunity, so people who are non-alcoholic, after they succumb to the desire again, so the mind tells me to pick up the drink. So the mind is the reason why I drink, not the body. If I've been sober for three or seven days, depending on how bad my alcohol intake was, if I no longer have alcohol in my body and I pick up alcohol on day 11... The only reason I'm picking up a drink is because my mind told me to. I no longer have cravings. So when a new person says, oh, I'm craving, uh, I'm craving getting high. Or I want to get drunk. That is not a physical craving. That is a mental obsession. That is a thought in our mind that is louder and more consistent than all other thoughts. And it tells me the lie that it will be different this time. It convinces me to pick up a drink and it says... They succumb to the desire as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. So we come to, we're miserable, we're embarrassed, we're shameful, we're guilty. We do the walk of shame. We hate ourselves. We say, okay, I'm going to not drink anymore. We go into that miserable cycle. We're restless, irritable, and discontent. And then the, the mental obsession tells us a lie to pick up a drink, and we pick up a drink, and we start the cycle over. So what alcohol is, is, um, is not is a guy, a homeless guy under a bridge. Or someone who's had seven DUIs and lost their family and has been locked up. Those are things that can happen to people who are hard drinkers or alcoholics. That doesn't Consequences does not mean alcoholism. What alcoholism is, is what happens to me during periods of sobriety, what my mind is like, and why I pick up another drink. It says, this is repeated over and over. That's a mental obsession. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, which is a new mind, there is very little hope of his recovery. So I say this to the new person and it feels like the gates of hell have claimed, which means fellowship alone is, in, is not enough. Fellowship alone is insufficient, which means if you've placed yourself beyond human aid, which I did when I got here, that the nice people in Alcoholics Anonymous, including me, who are well-meaning, are not going to be enough to help you overcome the mental obsession. Here's the good news. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem, this is through the 12 steps. To those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed to an alcoholic death, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire, which is in your mind, for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules, which are the steps. So the steps remove the mental obsession. So if my real problem isn't alcohol, then my solution to alcohol, which we're going to find on the next page... At the bottom, the last real paragraph, all these, I'm going to read that right now. It says, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. So once we put alcohol in our body, every single kind of alcoholic, whether you're living in a a refrigerator box or a mansion, whether you've lost everything or are in high school, whatever the problem is, 
if you're a real alcoholic, the only thing that you all have in common is that we need the second drink. It says they cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest that the first 100 men and women is entire abstinence. So the solution to the physical allergy is not drinking. But none of us can do that on our own, which is why the real problem and the real work is on the mental obsession. So the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are designed to remove the mental obsession, predominantly four through nine do the major unblocking of those heart chambers. And 10, 11, and 12 are this daily program of action I need to take to keep my body healthy, my heart healthy, the medication I need to take, the exercise, the food intake, so I don't ever get blocked off again. So that is the deal. So one step one is identifying the problem. The problem that the book tells me is I have a, a body that can't process alcohol and a mind that believes it can. I've got a body that is killing my mind and a mind that is killing my body. And if my real problem is in my mind, I cannot use my mind to fix it. And if I've placed myself beyond human aid, I cannot use you, even if you're the best sponsor in the world, to make me better. I always say if there was anyone on earth that could have saved me that was a human power, it would have been my mom. We are going to flip to Bill's story. And we are going to pass Bill's story, even though it's an amazing story and very uncomfortable to read. And we are going to get into there is a solution, which is one. So I just want to have a disclaimer here, and we're going to go to 21. The disclaimer is there are more than one solution. There are many solutions for people to not drink. You can hire a sober bodyguard by, like Lindsay Lohan did. You can um, do a crime that gets you in prison, but even there you can get drugs and alcohol. You can um, go into religion. You can take medication that makes you sick. Um, at the end of the day, Alcoholics Anonymous only offers one solution. We do not have a monopoly on the solutions of alcoholism. We do not have a monopoly on God. Um, if you come to a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, my responsibility as a recovered alcoholic is only to offer you the one solution that we have, which is the 12 steps. So if someone, if you have ever been told by a member of this in this fellowship that is well-meaning, you're not ready to work the steps, I can assure you as someone who studies the book that that is not our program. That actually contradicts our program and no one is allowed to tell another person that they are not ready to get unblocked, which is like me saying to the person on the gurney, if you've been pulled on the gurney, they had to resuscitate you two times in the ambulance. They identified that three out of your four chambers are blocked. The doctor says we need to do open heart surgery right now. That would be like me coming to you as a layman and saying, I don't think you're ready. Why don't you go wait in the waiting room for like six months and I'll let you know when you're ready. Um, it's just not, it's not appropriate. So we're gonna go to page 21 and we're gonna stop right here for one second so I can pause and start over on the next tape. It's not a tape. It's 2018, the next recording.